we are respectful and admire experience. It's always valuable to have around. The truth is, it's the people who don't have the experience often are the breakthrough artists for the future. They often are the folks who say, I'm not tethered to that past. And so therefore I can create something new. And I think that organizations are living things. They breathe, they breathe in and out. And sometimes you need that wisdom. And then other times you really need that fearlessness around, I don't have this assumption so I can go create something new. It is generally the people who don't have the most experience who lead us most courageously into the future. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Nancy Householder Haig, the Chief Human Resource Officer at Automation Anywhere, one of the fastest growing companies on earth. Now, Automation Anywhere is the world's most sophisticated digital work platform, making work more human by automating business processes and liberating people. Their AI-powered robotic processing automation is, for many people, quite a profound but provocative technology. The thought of automating human jobs away? It seems odd that we would have a people person talk to us about what robots do. And yet, with Automation Anywhere, it raised the largest Series A round of $250 million at a $1.6 billion valuation and went to a $6.8 billion valuation a year later. And while Nascency is often called the Chief Human Resources Officer, she sees herself as a Chief People Officer. And it's an important distinction because it shapes the way she leads. She's a veteran of five IPOs and has intimate experience about the opportunities and challenges that organizations face when they have to significantly transform. Her first role was working for an early son, Microsystems, which she often jokes made a million dollars a month when she joined and a million dollars nearly every other hour by the time she left. She knows how to put people first, even in the midst of disruption. She's great humor, a wicked sense that always draws people in and has won the Stevie Award for Women in High Tech, and truly is one of the most influential women in Silicon Valley. I'm delighted that she's been willing to come and share her story on the show. So let's get started and hear where it often began. Or more importantly, how does Nancy identify these amazing companies, even before most people know they're going to be a hit? Joining Sun was an enormous turning point because it gave me an appetite for things that would disrupt. Sun Microsystems disrupted some of the commonly held beliefs about technology, all the proprietary concept. Sun was, you know, it would plug and play anywhere, open systems for open minds. I was so intrigued by this, you know, scrappy startup that was willing to really challenge the norms of that environment. And that's the early 80s. You know, I'm 117 years old. That's a long time ago. <laughs> Um, and so you look and then, 17, more than 117. And so that then, you know, kind of gives you this appetite to say, you know, from that point, I can't go into a company that is, you know, kind of just widgets and just trying to make a better widget. I, I was looking for companies then that would say, maybe we don't need widgets. What if we do something else entirely? And so that that's always been, you know, kind of the, the itch in my brain that I wanted scratched by any company I joined. 
And so whether it was, you know, a company that was forging new territory in terms of education or very early in this century, whether it was trying to help kids in dorm rooms download music, music and movies ethically into their dorm rooms, that sort of thing, something would dislocate a little bit. And so it's funny that I think it's one of the reasons you and I resonate in terms when we chat together, Barry, is that there is that concept of how do you get the world to unlearn something and be ready for the next thing? How do you get them to move into that treacherous territory called the future, which means they have to give up something from the past in order to get into that better future? Such a great point. Such a great point. So many people, you know, uh, try to sort of find these uh, emerging opportunities or these new businesses that, you know, will challenge their assumptions of what has gone before, right? And I think that's almost like an, an intuition to you. How could you sort of help people understand, like, what are some of the signals you look for when you're like thinking about, well, what are these new types of business points and or inflection points that you sometimes see where it makes you go, I want to actually go and jump on that train. Right. You know, from seeing that in some to even now when you're in automation anywhere, what were some of those signals for you that helped you get yourself outside your comfort zone, but know that that was the potentially the vehicle to get you there? Uh, when you talk about technology, I'm a lot like a dog watching TV. You know, I'm not getting a lot of it. And so what I have to look for when my intuition gets buzzed by is the people. And so I always look at, you know, how smart do I think these folks are? How good do I think they are? And what is the level that I see of passion? How passionate are they about this? And so when I see really smart people who've moved just from the analytics about an opportunity or a technology or what its, po- its possibilities to a passion, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're around fire about it. That makes you pay attention. I remember in the late 90s, I had opportunity to consult to a company that was doing a streaming technology and nobody was doing it. Everybody said it was too hard. Everybody wanted to, but you know, there was something about these four guys and their confidence in it, their confidence in each other. Certainly they had great pedigrees, a bunch of, you know, PhD pointy headed guys from Berkeley, but it was, it was just this buzz that they had this, you know, you can see a bunch of smart people come together about technology and like, yes, well, this should work because people need it, blah, 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 blah. That's not the same vibe as when they say, I'm telling you, this is going to really do something, you know, and so they carry you along. And so my intuition is generally around, you know, kind of how smart are these people? How good do I think they are as human beings? Are their intentions good? And then what's their level of passion? I joined my current company because the CEO posed a question to me that I found so interesting and provocative. He said, Nancy, what do you think the role of human resources is when 30% of the workforce isn't human? And, you know, I have to tell you, the fact that he asked that question, that he thought about that showed a level of passion and, and interest from his perspective. And boy, I thought, you know, if I don't have that much more career left, that's a question I'd really like to solve before my career is over. Yeah, that's so, so good. Yeah. Well, th- there's so much what you're saying here that resonates the provocative nature of great questions, right? In a way, I think, as you say, people that are smart and passionate and deeply ingrained in something new seem to be able to ask those provocative questions. And great teams are good at asking those provocative questions of one another. 
not to sort of be cruel to people or to take it, but to actually tease out some of the like the real meaning, the real value, the real things that matter to folks, because that's what solving a lot of those problems are when you're truly innovating, when you're doing things that haven't been done before. You've you've got to work muscles you don't have or you maybe had and forgot or but but the provocation is important. That obviously drew you into the company. Like what have been some of the the other fun sort of moments, especially as you've started to answer that question over the last few years, what have been the surprises to you? Several. I will tell you two quick stories. When we built our first bot in human resources, it was a bot to count our heads. We were growing very rapidly. We're moving into new countries. We didn't have a centralized payroll group. We had a U.S. payroll group, but we had to set up PEOs and outside payroll systems and Counting heads was tough because how many new people are coming in and when do they start was all over the place. And so the young woman who did that did it, you know, once or twice a week, taking four or five hours to get it done. And then we wrote a bot. And at first she was a little concerned because that writing, you know, producing that report gave her some visibility around the company and with executives. But we wrote the bot and three weeks later, Sarah came to me and said, Nancy, not only will I never do that report manually again. I'll never work for a company that does it manually because that's an IQ test they failed. And she went on then to go create her intern program for us. Just a remarkable. She took those 10 hours a week and made something that was far more contributory. And what I've discovered, the really wonderful discovery I've had around bots, there's two things. One is I've never met anybody who wants to go back to manual after they've automated something. Yeah. And the second thing is we've never built a bot and we have built 150 in HR in my organization. We've never built a bot that didn't promote a human being. In other words, they got to do something more interesting. You know, there's all this spilkus about, you know, oh my goodness, we're going to have to retool the organization. That has not been my experience. My experience is that every time we get rid of one of those industrial age assumptions about how work should be done, every time we get rid of it, it removes a level of camouflage from the talent that's been there. And so it's not about, oh, I have to go retool them. It's just, I just have to give it sunlight. Oh my gosh, we've been hiding all this talent under these arcane processes and this mundane work. So the other thing that has been really thrilling is there is one piece of work that we've done because we have automation that you would never do without it. In other words, it's kind of an invention and it's around being able to produce individual development plans for the employees at Automation Anywhere through a lot of data, data we collect from their managers, data we collect from them, being able to pull that data together, having it weighted based on where and what part of the organization they are. It helps us predict their stickiness, their retention, commitment. It helps us do all sorts of things. It gives us the ability to give every manager a custom configured set of interventions to make certain that that employee is getting what they need and that we're contributing to the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams. You would never do this. This process is so time consuming. If a human did it, the data would be outdated before you could get to it. And you would never put this many people on that particular product. So we suddenly have something that couldn't have been developed without automation. And it is in such service of our employees that it is one of the most one of the most thrilling things I've done in my entire career, which stretches back to 1861. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, I mean, 
I thought electricity was the big breakthrough for my career, but no, look at this. It is this bot that does personal development plans. You're making me smile, Nancy, but like there's so many great points to unpack here from the, both of those stories that you're sharing. The first is, is sort of debunking some of these sort of, you know, fear-mongering notions in the market that bots are here to take people's jobs. But yeah, really, again, what you're sharing is bots are here to unleash people to do highly complex creative work and take away the menial tasks that you know, are holding them back from flowering or blooming, as, as you're describing, and how it actually supports building a system where people are more engaged in their work because they're not yes. doing mundane tasks. They're doing interesting, complex, challenging, growth-based right. problem-solving with machines to help them do a lot of the sort of, you know, manual, repetitive, like, tasks that just might would never have happened because of the, the manual effort to do the work. So let's dive a little bit more into that, because I mm -hmm. think the fact you're also so based around people development in your role as a, a you know, chief human resources right. officer, and this idea of creating environments where people can do the best work that's aligned to their personal ambition, that's aligned to the company's needs, you know, right. I'm fascinated to hear, like, what have been some of the surprising things you've learned? Because you've had this capability to look at information that you never would have had maybe in your previous roles, where the task of, you know, researching and employee surveys, right. you know, who even fills them out anymore, and that you don't have to rely on this sort of latent information that you can actually see right. how people are truly interacting with services. So, what have been some of those surprising transitions in your own method as a, a chief HR officer that are starting to surprise you? So there's several things. I think that if you'd asked me a year ago before a pandemic, I would have had one set of questions or one set of answers for you around the ability to, as I said, get quickly to what you want to do. I used to explain that the automation had given me access to what I call my if-only list, right? Everybody has one. You carry around this if-only list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. as, I, as I frequently say, you know, no HR person has ever said, gee, if only I didn't have to do this executive development, I could get back to data entry and analysis, right? And so, <laughs> you know, to start with, when you're getting rid of all that data entry and analysis, you're actually getting the space and the room. And so when people say the, the, the more complex, the higher order bit, what I want to remind you of is that that's what the human brain does naturally. What the human brain does naturally is the more complex, higher-order bit. And those are some of the words that frighten people around. So, oh, my God, I, maybe I'm not a complex, higher-order bit person. You are. You have a human brain. And human brains were not designed to do the repetitive, menial task. Human brains were designed to think and learn and ponder and create and innovate. And just storing data and analyzing data is not really what we do. We have, we're great at discerning patterns when we see data but it's better to let the bots do that mundane thing. Today, you know, in terms of the breakthrough, so, you know, I learned a lot about kind of how we should be configuring work for, you know, how the human brain actually works in my first couple of years at Automation Anywhere. What I've learned in the last year is that human resources must really lead with humans. And what's occurred this year, when you think about what's occurred, this social distance has created far greater intimacy, right? I'm looking into your home 
I'm yeah, looking at what kind of art you choose. I'm looking yeah. at what the books are you have, right? You're looking into my husband's studio and you're learning a little bit about my life. And so rather than the traditional employment world where you say, I'm going to call you an employee, I'm going to bring you into a place where you are an employee. So I'm going to put you in a pen where you are an employee. And our relationship is that you're an employee and you're defined by the role you're going to provide for us. All of that is kind of gone. The four walls, there's no artificial place to put you called a workplace. Here's my workplace, right? I now look at you as an individual. I don't see anybody anymore as a herd of people in an artificial environment called a workplace surrounded by rectilinear, you know, chairs and tables. What I see now is into when we do a meeting of 100 people, I'm looking into 100 people's backgrounds. And some have virtual backgrounds. And so they're showing me something about their taste or their, yeah, their yeah. aspirations. Other yeah. people I'm seeing right into their homes. And then I see their kid walk by. A spouse is sitting close enough that I can see their elbow. They're also working. A dog lands in their lap. I will never see these people just under that definition of employee again. They are the human beings that make this up. And so I think that my entire profession has been turned on its head between automation and the concept of remote work and what it means about the covenant that will exist between employees and employers in the future. Uh, that's so fascinating to me too. Like I, I think that notion of seeing the whole human that you're sort of alluding to here is, I think it's been one of the most profound and and best parts yes. of this whole challenge we've all had to deal with. And recognizing people for who they are as people rather than just employee ID 476537, you know, like <laughs> exactly. what, what, what time did you get to the office today? You know, yeah, I, right. I, I think it's been a huge breakthrough for people. And, and again, I think it, it lets people be more of themselves. And I think that's often hard at work is for people to understand uh, pe- other your constraints at home, like what what do you have to deal with? What's your situation? What right. what's you about it? What brings us together? What makes us different? And that's okay. And and how all these tools and technologies actually are able to connect us in ways and help us do our work, but also right. hinder doing our work. You know, I think I've seen so many people like just struggling to have the ability to get information that they need or collaborate or find tools that they can use to help them do their job better. What have been some of the interesting tools that you've seen emerge, especially in remote work? You're building these sort of tools and bots to help people even in that transition. Have there been some fun and interesting ones that have jumped out to you through that process? You know, it's quite fascinating. So, you know, a couple of things occurred at the beginning of of the pandemic. You know, like many businesses, we saw, you know, oh, my God, we may be running off a cliff here, right? I mean, we have no idea what's going to happen from a commercial sense. And what occurred then is that suddenly the demand for our products started to grow quite a bit. I remember the first kind of the canary in the cave for me was a company, U.S.-based company, healthcare company that had all its back-end office stuff sitting in China. When China shut down, all their back-ends shut down. And so they came to us and, and said, quickly, can you help us build? some automation here so we we can make certain our business continues to run. We saw lots of that occurring. And then as people moved into the, it started to embrace, you know, oh, I see, we can run the economy with remote workers. We, we're going to be okay. The whole way you start to sell, the way you start to buy, the, you know, the, what are you, how are these relationships working? The collaborative tools that 
the engineering organization uses, that even my team uses, are remarkable. I mean, they're, it used to be you'd stand at a whiteboard fighting over a pen with somebody, right? You do the same thing now. Let me share. No, no, give that to me. No, you know, it's, so you have the same exact conversations. There is a slight delay because, of course, there's this, you know, it's not quite as perfectly dynamic as it is when you're together. The other side of that equation, though, is you're not wasting three hours of your life in the commute anymore. You're giving those hours to your family or you're giving those hours to work or you're hopefully taking care of your health, something like that. But again, that very, very post-World War II industrial age mentality of having to get in your car and go someplace where you're going to work and never really acknowledging that human beings work in their head 100% of the time. Right. They're always thinking and, and it's very difficult for them to bifurcate it. But again, to your point earlier, I now see the human being. I remember early in my career when I was asked to leave my gender, my intellect and my humor outside the workplace. Right. They didn't need me to be a smart ass. They certainly didn't need me to be a woman at work. And they sure didn't want me to use my intellect to do anything other than the job they'd given me. And so over the course of my career, I've watched as they said, gee, you know, that humor thing, you could bring that to work because we kind of like having the attention diffused by that. And your intellect, we're happy to have you weigh in on any topic that you think you might have something to contribute. And then finally, they said, oh, you know, that gender thing, why don't you bring that to work too? Because as it turns out, about 50% of the consumers in the world are women. What do you know about that? And so over the course of my career, I've been invited to be a more integrated personality and not leave half of me outside the workplace. Well, now, oh my goodness, this is a very different environment. But, you know, you know, Barry, I think the biggest thing we had to unlearn in the last year, we had to unlearn distrust by moving people into their homes, by having them work from home. Everybody worried about productivity. Everybody worried about commitment. What we discovered is the opposite was true. People are overcommitted. People will overwork when they're in their home environment. And we really had to teach a whole generation of leaders that you can trust the people that work for you. They don't have to be in that artificial corporate environment in order to fulfill their obligations. And I think that was one of the biggest changes that's happened in the last year is that trust is now ubiquitous. Yeah, I just think that's such a profound insight. You know, I've seen that too as well. And I've seen both sides of that equation. One of the things that, again, so many people were used to managing in person, but the methods they used to manage productivity were more industrial, to your point as well, still. What time Mm -hmm. people came in? What time did they go home? Did they look busy? Did the team look like, if I look out there, did they look like they're running around with activity? And then when we go to this sort of remote world, those visual cues were gone for some managers and yes. they were lost. The tools that they use to measure performance of, of watching, of checking in, of asking people, are you finished your task? That's you know, right. they, they were gone and they actually became noise. So people were at home trying to work. And every two minutes, there's another email saying, can I have a report on what you're doing? Can I have a report on what? People yeah. were like struggling here rather than <laughs> trusting teams, like giving them... Right outcomes to achieve and then letting them get on with the work and see the quality of the work that they're producing actually as the measurement, not the activity they're performing mm-hmm. to create the artifact. I think that highlighted some pretty hard home truths probably for a lot of leaders where they realized that they were more industrial 
command and control managers. That's right. And they were progressive, trusting people to do the work. So I saw a lot of it and I saw a lot of pain as people were making that transition. Uh, so it's a right. great point. I have found this to be a great playfield leveler that for the entire time of my career, we've always had remote employees who said, listen, you know, I'm, I'm not in the thick of things and the, the information comes to me late and I, you know, I just don't feel like I'm part of it. Now everybody is in the same boat and you don't have, you know, that kind of recency bias of executives because they see you walk by their office all the time. They think they know you and therefore they will value your contribution over the person that they don't see who happens to be sitting in Japan or London. Well, now that we have a level playing field. It is so much better for a global organization when you are getting to know your people through, you know, this medium. And I know it's awkward for folks and I know that it takes new behaviors, but that's just it. We've got to, we do have to just dump the assumptions we've had in the past about how we really look and assess who's making a contribution. It has to be about contribution. You know, it's funny. And I know that because Automation Anywhere is a company that's designed to help free up cranial capacity, right? Free you up so you could think about the things. One of the earliest situations I had at Sun, I invited an old colleague to come and work with me early days. And one day I was walking through the office and he said, Nancy, do you see me here? Here's our CEO. Do you see me here? And here has kind of a glass office. And I said, yeah. And he said, what is he doing? And I look over and I said, well, he's looking out the window. And he said, you know, he's been standing like that for about 30 minutes. And I said, you know what? That's thinking. You may not recognize it, but that's thinking. And this is what we do. When you are no longer being measured by, are your fingers on the keyboard a certain amount of time? Is your butt in a certain seat? Are you producing your widgets? Even if they're knowledge-based widgets, the truth is when you actually stop and watch somebody think, actually doing the work that we do as human beings, it's like, huh, what is that? I don't recognize that work. So. <laughs> That I found was a thrilling moment because I realized, oh, I have a CEO who's actually in front of everybody practicing what he preaches. He's been standing there with his arms behind his back and looking out up at a window out of a, at a tree thinking for 30 minutes, teaching everybody that's okay to do it. Absolutely. And so, so, so yeah. good. Yeah. You know, like people forget that thinking is actually an activity and probably the most important, <laughs> especially yes. as a senior exec. A similar funny example for me was one of the execs at HSBC. What he would literally put in his calendar every week is thinking time. What he would do is he would block out 90 minutes and he would just go out into Central Park and just walk around the park and just like take his time and like let all the information that's poured on them for the day to just percolate and process it in the background because I'm totally with you. I have to do this myself. And for me, it's like my exercise when I do mm -hmm. a run. I purposely try and step away for an hour during the day to eat some lunch, but then do something that's nowhere related to all the tasks I've been doing earlier right. today so I can percolate. Because right. it's a bit like we've seen some of that pattern as well, where people got into the activity mode Oh, I'm doing 10 back-to-back -back, uh, meetings today. I'm, you know, I, I'm just yeah. going to get to the end of the day with a list of 20 actions they've got to do, and they're exhausted, right? right. And, and I think there's a lot to be learned here about designing your week or making space for these, these activities that are so important 
that don't necessarily involve you like being visibly running around and typing things. And, and this sort of, I think the principle I'm hearing a lot from our conversations here is freeing yourselves up, getting away from the busyness of things and actually making space to free ourselves up, whether that's mentally to think about things, whether it's tasks that could be repeated and done in different ways where we can free ourselves up to focus on more important things. But I think it's It's such an important insight for folks. Recently, I took on a a cohort of women inside Automation Anywhere to coach eight women that are clearly future leaders. They're just amazing. They're, They're present leaders, but they are going to be far more impactful in terms of their roles in the future. And so I've been working with them for about a quarter. And one of the the topics we talked about is when are you most innovative? When are you most creative? When do you get your greatest thinking time done? And many of them said, gee, I, you know, part of it was my commute. I gave up thinking in my commute. One woman said, so I go out in the car and just drive up and down 280 for my thinking time because I everything else, what I'm doing is muscle memory. Driving is unconscious competence, which means my brain can do some other things. And I happen to be one of those people who it's like Eureka in the bathtub, right? I, for some reason, the shower, I'm, oh my goodness. I, you know, so I'm always, oh, that's, that'll work. And so they all were identifying when those times were. And what we did, we started to say, how do we consciously now put that time in place? So I thank God, you know, you're driving up and down 280. But for the other seven of you, now that you've identified it, how do you make certain you get that time every day? Don't let it be, you know, serendipitous, right? Because it's not. You have now identified when your brain tells you what you need, what it does its work, and then, it's, then it tees it up to you. But you have to get quiet enough in some environment for it to tee it up to you. How do you do that? And we keep confusing our brain with all this activity. And you're That's right. So that, point. yeah. It's really interesting as well here where, Anchoring is a really important part of our behavior, right? Mm-hmm. When we do a certain a task, it often prompts us to do the next thing. So, it, you know, your example, like, why do people have great ideas in the shower? Because when people are there, their brain automatically flips into a mode of just pontificating or some right. people exercise, some people drive their car on their way to work, but they're prompts. Right. Like we actually train Mm -hmm. ourselves to sort of go, oh, I'm in this mode or to your point, this sort of, you know, I'm unconsciously conscious of what I'm doing. So now I'm just going to process other stuff. That's right. You have to be aware, as you've obviously shared with your leadership group there, like making people aware of what are the anchors that prompt us to be Mm -hmm. creative in our thinking and intentionally putting them into your day, I think, is, is so important. Because the busyness wipes away any of those anchors or you're, I'm too busy to take a break or I'm too busy to sort of right. to take that time. And I think there's a lot to be said about being aware of it and being intentional about putting it into your practice. And protecting our brain a little bit. You know, our brain gets tuckered out. You know, the frontal lobe is the newest part of the brain. It has a finite capability. It makes a certain number of decisions in a day. And then it says, you know, I'm done. And you may give me another decision, but it's, I'm not going to make it as well as I made the last four. So, you know, you just, so, and you really need to understand that. And this is why, again, the remote work environment has allowed us all to sort out our own circadian rhythms. So long as we are not being, you know, again, forced as a herd into an artificial workplace with artificial work hours that, by the way, represent more the agrarian age, even than the industrial age, right? I mean, so if you think about it, so, I mean, we're going way back there. 
And suddenly you have people that say, gee, I'm more comfortable working 5 a.m. I get a lot done, right? And I love that quiet time and I can be really productive here. And then when people start to come into the world at eight or nine o'clock, I'm all ahead of it. And maybe my brain gets more tuckered out at three o'clock in the afternoon, but you've got, you're getting the best of me. And they weren't doing that when they had to go into an office to work. It's much easier for people to sort out what their circadian rhythm is and when they're going to be most effective and most productive and most creative primarily. And so, yeah, I think that there's the silver lining of the last year is that we've learned a lot about what really makes people thrive at work. And sometimes it's not being at work. This is such a great natural transition then to sort of ask you, as you keep joking, you, you know, you were there and the, you were, you've been there in the beginning and, you know, you're, you know, again, you're right on the cusp of so much stuff that is changing about work from the increase in automation and how you and the team have embraced remote working. You know, I have to ask you then, like looking ahead, what are some of the things that sort of excite you or, or maybe things that you would encourage people to think about, to be cautious of? areas to be really intentional about as they start to think about what the future of work looks like for them, both from a a human HR leader, but also someone in in these sort of very leading edge technology companies. I'd love to hear some of your advice or tips there. So I think we all know that, you know, we are a social animal. We are an animal that likes to be a bit in a herd. And so we do need the pheromones, we need the, the energy and tension and electricity that we get from other people. Everybody, though, has their own capacity for it, their own need, their own requirement. And so I see the workplace of the future, as I see it, that the corporate office will turn into a collaborative space. I can't imagine a future where there are individual executive offices, where there are lines and rows of workstations and people working there, you know, Unless you're somebody who needs six monitors, perhaps you don't have room in your house or something. You know, I mean, there may be yeah. there may be reasons to be there, but I think mostly the reason people are going to go to a community place to work is so, to be part of a community. To say, I have communal work, I have uh, collaborative work that I have to get done, and so I think these workplaces are going to have to be configured very differently than they have traditionally. Workplaces still reflect hierarchy. No matter what you do, they reflect hierarchy. And one of the things we continue to learn here is that the world of true knowledge and innovation work is a flatter place than what my father's generation pulled out of the World War II paradigms and then imbued in corporate America, corporate life. And they did that, you know, because they had been institutionalized for five years of World War II. And so those things seemed to work. Those mechanisms worked and they laid them down here. Those are 75 and 80-year-old ideas, and yet we still automatically, we just assume, we just we fall into those assumptions. This has changed that. This has totally changed that. There is no hierarchy of office space that you see in this environment. It's a more egalitarian. So that humanism creates that more egalitarian perspective. A hundred years ago, you know, 35 years ago, when I worked at Sun Microsystems, we had a, an issue that we, they were trying to sort out. It was a technical issue. I, I had, again, I was uh, the dog watching TV. I had no idea what they were talking about. But I happened to be in the meeting, and there was all of these, you know, incredibly 
brilliant people, you know, Eric Schmidt, who went on to run Google and Bill Joy, the author of Unix and Wayne Rosing, who is, uh, you know, James Gosling from the Java guy. I mean, these were really amazing guys all sitting in the room, big Brainiac trust fund. And Scott McNeely was trying to sort out uh, whether we should move to a different technology. And he looked around the room and there were a whole bunch of, there was like probably 30 engineers all sitting there observing this. And he pointed to a kid way in the back of the room. And he said, hey, you, didn't we just hire you from MIT? Aren't you? I mean, and, and the young man said, yeah, I've been here about six weeks. And he said, well, weren't you using this technology at the MIT Media Labs with, you know, Nicholas Decrepine? What you do? He said, yeah, I will. He said, well, what do you think we should do? And this young man who'd been there six weeks, new grad on the MBA or the, the master's program in computer science, went to a whiteboard and said, well, here's the pros, here's the cons, here's what you've got today. This is what I experienced before. This is what I recommend. And McNeely said, done. And so I observed in that moment what the, you know, once you cut through titles, once you stop looking at all the prestige and all of that, you could get to the person who had the best answer. This is where we are today is going to be a far more lovely level playing field. And I think that ideas and innovation are going to emerge very differently than they have in the past because we haven't configured environments to be collaborative in the same way. They've been hierarchical. They remain hierarchical such a great story and and I, i'm seeing that a lot you know in many other spaces too as well like one of the companies i've been working with is slack and they're a classic example where they they became aware of that behavior like yes. they had their head office in san francisco all the executives based here executives on the top floor and they were like hang mm-hmm. on this is crazy you know and right. and now they've re-energized the business by stewart's now moved to new york He's going to live in New York. He's not going to be based in San Francisco anymore. Their new chief people officer, Nadia Rollinstone, hired in Chicago, hired remotely, has never met any of the team in person ever, right? right. And, and she's had to onboard and be an exec in a whole, a whole different region. They're not going to hire any more leaders in San Francisco for the rest of this year. Like They're really trying to federate out so mm-hmm. much of the responsibility, break down so many of those, you know, norms that had creeped in almost unaware, yeah. but to be visible. And this notion, I think, as you're sort of alluding to as well, is being really intentional about how you design collaboration, how oh. you like have the wild cards, how you ask the person who's like at the very front line and using the technology, what's working with this at not. Like the CEOs are so, there's so much static between them and what's actually right. happening. And, but it requires the humility of the leaders, as you sharing in your story, to recognize that they can learn the most from the, probably the people who might be the most juniorist or freshest to the situation, but they have to ask and create the space to let them share that information and hear it. And yes. I think that's such an important uh, lesson for folks <clears throat> to take away. One of the things that we've really had to learn in the last, you know, kind of 30 years, I guess, in Silicon Valley is that while you must, we are respectful and admire experience, it's always valuable to have around. The truth is, it's the people who don't have the experience often are the breakthrough artists for the future. They often are the folks who say, I'm not tethered to that past, and so therefore I can create something new. And I think that organizations are living things. They breathe. They breathe in and out. And sometimes you need that wisdom. And then other times you really need that fearlessness around, I don't have this assumption, so I can go create something new. 
it is generally the people who don't have the most experience who lead us most courageously into the future. Yeah, well, I, what I want to say, maybe for me and many listeners, is really to thank you for your own courageous leadership, you know, from working, uh, you keep joking for hundreds of years in, in this industry, but like to highlight and role model so much of this great behavior in people and how you're constantly not reinvesting that back into future generations and highlighting opportunities for people. I know you've shared about how you're focused and coached a lot of future female leaders, but I know you, you think of everybody that you're coaching and helping in that space. And I just want to say again, thank you so much for sharing so many amazing nuggets, fun stories, and your humor, it, it, you know, shines. So thank you very much for sharing stuff with us on the show today, Nancy. It's been awesome to have you on. Thank you, Bear. You may have left Ireland, but you still got a bit of Blarney in you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to hang on to the roots. They say. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. This was very fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. Pleasure. Thank you very much.